Chapters 83, 84, and 85 of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 83 "'I don't know about holding you both in my lap at once,' said Ruth, smiling, as Nettie climbed up after Katie. "'Please do,' said Nettie. "'And now let us have a nice talk. "'Tell us where we are going to live, Mama, "'and if we can have a kitty or a rabbit "'or some live thing to play with, "'and if we're going to go to school, "'and if you're going to leave off riding now "'and play with Katie and me "'and go to walk with us and ride with us. "'Shan't we have some rides?' "'What is the matter, Mama? said the little chatterbox, noticing a tear in her mother's eye. "'I was thinking, dear, how happy we are.' "'Isn't that funny,' said Nettie to Katie, "'that Mama should cry when she is happy. "'I never heard of such a thing. "'I don't cry when I'm happy. "'Didn't we have a good dinner, Katie? "'Oh, I like this house. "'It was such an old dark room we used to live in, "'and there was nothing pretty to look at, "'and Mama kept on writing, "'and I had nothing to play with "'except the little mouse who used to peep out of his hole "'when it came dark for some supper. "'I liked him. He was so cunning, "'but I couldn't give him any supper because—' "'Here the little chatterbox glanced at her mother, "'and then placing her mouth to Katie's ear— whispered with a look of gravity of which was irresistible because mamma couldn't support a mouse ruth laughed heartily as she overheard the remark and nettie thought her mother more of a puzzle than ever that she should keep laughing and crying so in the wrong place what have you there nettie asked katie something said nettie looking very wise as she hid her chubby hands under her pinafore it is a secret mamma and i know said she with a very important air don't we mamma would you tell katie mother if you were me certainly said ruth you know it would not be pleasant to keep such a great secret from katie nettie looked very searchingly into her mother's eyes but she saw nothing there but sincerity won't you ever tell katie ever it is a terrible secret no replied katie laughing not even to mr walter asked nettie who had learned to consider mr walter as their best friend and the impersonation of all that was manly and chivalrous katie shook her head negatively well then said nettie hanging her head with a pretty shame i'm in love katie burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter rocking herself to and fro and ejaculating oh mamma oh did you ever oh how funny funny said nettie with the greatest naivety it wasn't funny at all it was very nice i'll tell you all how it happened katie you see i used to get so tired when you were away when i had nobody to play with and mamma kept up such a thinking so mamma said i might go to a little free school opposite half a day when i felt like it and perhaps that would amuse me mamma told the teacher not to trouble herself about teaching me much well i sat on a little low bench and right opposite me across the room was such a pretty little boy his name was nettie he had on a blue jacket with twelve bright buttons on it i counted them and little plaid pants and drab gaiters and his cheeks were so rosy and his hair so curly and his eyes so bright oh katie and nettie clasped her little hands together in a paroxysm of admiration 
"'Well, Katie, he kept smiling at me, "'and in recess he used to give me half his apple, "'and once when nobody was looking. "'Would you tell her, Mama?" said Nettie doubtfully, "'as she ran up to her mother. "'Won't you tell now, Katie? Certainly,' asked again Nettie. "'No,' promised Katie. "'Not even to Mr. Walter?' "'No.' "'Well, once when the teacher wasn't looking, Katie, "'he took a piece of chalk and wrote Nettie on the palm of his hand "'and held it up to me and then kissed it. "'And Nettie hid her glowing face on Katie's neck, whispering, "'Wasn't it beautiful, Katie?' "'Yes,' replied Katie, trying to keep from laughing. "'Well,' said Nettie, "'I felt most ashamed to tell Mama. "'I don't know why, though. "'I believe I was afraid she would call it silly or something, "'and I felt just as if I should cry if she did. "'But, Katie, she did not think it a silly a bit. "'She said it was beautiful to be loved, "'and that it made everything on earth look brighter, "'and that she was glad little Nettie loved me, "'and that I might love him just as much as ever I liked, "'just the same as if he were a little girl.' "'Wasn't that nice?' asked Nettie. "'I always mean to tell Mama everything. "'Don't you, Katie?' "'But you have not told Katie yet "'what you have hidden under your apron there,' said Ruth. "'Sure enough,' said Nettie, producing a little picture. "'Well, Nettie whispered to me one day in recess "'that he had drawn a pretty picture on purpose for me "'and that he was going to have a lottery. "'I don't know what a lottery is, "'but he cut a great many slips of paper, "'some long and some short, "'and the one who got the longest was to have the picture. "'Then he put a little tiny mark on the end of the longest "'so that I should know it, "'and then I got the picture, you know.' "'Why did he take all that trouble?' asked the practical Katie. "'Why didn't he give it to you outright if he wanted to?' "'Because, because,' said Nettie, twirling her thumbs and blushing with a little feminine shame at her boy-lover's want of independence. "'He said he was afraid the boys would laugh at him if they found out.' "'Well, then, I wouldn't have taken it if I had been you,' said the phlegmatic Katie." "'But you know I loved him so,' said Nettie naively. End of chapter 83 Chapter 84 Days and weeks flew by. Katie and Nettie were never weary of comparing notes and relating experiences. Nettie thought gloomy attics, scant fare, and cross landladies the climax of misery, and Katie considered a score of milestones, with Nettie and a loving mother at one end, and herself and a cross grandmother at the other infinitely worse. "'Why, you can't tell anything about it,' said Katie. "'Grandma took away a little kitty because I loved it, and burned up a story-book Mama brought me, and tore up a letter which Mama printed in big capital letters on a piece of paper for me to read when I was lonesome. And she wouldn't let me feed the little snowbirds when they came shivering round the door, and she made me eat turnips when they made me sick, and she said I must not run when I went to school, for fear it would wear my shoes out, and she put me to bed so early, and I used to lie and count the 
the stars. I liked the seven little stars all cuddled up together best, and sometimes I looked at the moon and thought I saw faces and mountains in it, and I wondered if it was shining into Mamma's window, and then I thought of you all snug in Mamma's bed, and then I cried and cried, and got up and looked out into the road, and wondered if I could not run away in the night when Grandmother was asleep. Oh, Nettie, she was a dreadful grandmother. She tried to make me stop loving mother. She told me that she loved you better than she did me, and then I wanted to die. I thought of it every night. I knew it was not true, but it kept troubling me. And then she said that very likely mamma would go off somewhere without letting me know anything about it, and never see me again. and she always said such things just as i was going to bed and then you know i could not get to sleep till almost morning and when i did i dreamed such dreadful dreams you poor little thing exclaimed nettie with patronizing sympathy to her elder sister and laying her cheek against hers you poor little thing well mamma and i had a horrid time too you can't imagine the wind blew into the cracks of the room so cold and the stove smoked and i was afraid to eat when we had any supper for fear mamma would not have enough she always said i am not hungry dear but i think she did it to make me eat more and one night mamma had no money to buy candles and she wrote by moonlight and i often heard her cry when she thought i was asleep and i was so afraid of mamma's landladies they screamed so loud and scowled at me so and the grocer's boy made faces at me when i went in for a loaf of bread and said oh ain't we a fine lady ain't we and the wheel was off my old tin cart and oh dear katie and nettie's little voice grew fainter and fainter and the little chatterbox and her listener both fell asleep ruth as she listened in the shadow of the further corner thanked god that they who had so brief an acquaintance with life's joys so early an introduction to life's cares were again blithe free and joyous as childhood ever should be how sweet to have it in her power to hedge them in with comforts to surround them with pleasures to make up to them for every tear of sorrow they had shed to repay them for the mute glance of sympathy the silent caress given they scarce knew why but oh how touching how priceless when her own heart was breaking and there they lay in their pretty little bed sleeping cheek to cheek with arms thrown around each other nettie courageous impulsive independent irrepressible but loving generous sensitive and noble-hearted katie with veins through which the life-blood flowed more evenly thoughtful discriminating diffident reserved so proud of those magnetic qualities in her little sister in which she was lacking as to do injustice to her own solid but less showy traits needing ever the kind word of encouragement and judicious praise to stimulate into life the dormant seeds of self-reliance ruth kissed them both and left their future with him who doeth all things well twelve o'clock at night ruth lies dreaming by the side of her children she dreams that she roves with them through lovely gardens odorous with sweets she plucks for their parched lips the luscious fruits she garlands them with flowers and smiles in her sleep as their beaming eyes sparkle and the rosy flush of happiness mantles their cheeks but look 
there are three of them. Another has joined the band, a little shadowy form with lambent eyes and the smile of a seraph. Blessed little trio follows another. He has the same shadowy outline, the same sweet, holy, yet familiar eyes. Ruth's face grows radiant. The broken links are gathered up. The family circle is complete. With the sudden revulsion of dreamland, the scene changes. She dreams that the cry of fire, fire, resounds through the streets. Bells ring, dogs howl, watchmen spring their rattles, boys shout, men whoop and hallow, as they drag the engine over the stony pavements. Fire, fire, through the street after street. She dreams the watchword flies. Windows are thrown up, and many a nightcap head is thrust hastily out, and as hastily withdrawn, when satisfied of the distant danger. Still on rush the crowd. The heavens are one broad glare, and still the wreathed smoke curls over the distant houses. From the doors and windows and the doomed buildings, the forked flame, fanned by the fury of the wind, darts out its thousand fiery tongues. Women with disheveled locks and snow-white vestments rush frantically out, bearing in their tightened clasp the sick, maimed, and helpless, while the noble firemen, heedless of risk and danger, plunge fearlessly into the heated air of the burning building. Now Ruth moves uneasily on her pillow. She becomes conscious of a stifling, choking sensation. She slowly opens her eyes. God in heaven, it is not all a dream! With a wild shriek she springs from the bed, and snatching from it her bewildered children, flies to the stairway. It has fallen in! She rushes to the window, her long hair floating out on the breeze night. A smothered groan from the crowd below. They are lost! The showering cinders and falling rafters has shut out the dreadful tableau. No, the smoke clears away. That portion of the building still remains, and Ruth and her children are clinging to it with the energy of despair. Who shall save them? For it were death to mount that tottering wall. Men hold their breath, and women shriek in terror. See, a ladder is raised. A gallant fireman scales it. Katie and Nettie are dropped into the outstretched arms of the crowd below. The strong, brave arm of Johnny Galt is thrown around Ruth, and in an instant she lies fainting in the arms of a bystander. The butchering, ambitious conqueror impudently issues his bulletins of killed and wounded, quenching the sunlight in many a happy home. The world shouts, Bravo! Bravo! Telegraph wires and printing presses are put in requisition to do him honor. Men unharness the steeds from his triumphal car, and draw him in triumph through the flower-garlanded streets. Women, gentle women, tosses the slaughtering hero wreaths and chaplets, but who turned twice to look at brave Johnny Galt, as, with pallid face and smoky discolored garments, he crawled to his obscure home, and stretched his weary limbs on his miserable couch and yet the clinging grasp of rescued helplessness was still warm about his neck the thrilling cry save us yet rang in the ears of the heedless crowd god bless our gallant noble but unhonored firemen End of chapter eighty four chapter eighty five 
"'Strange we do not hear from John,' said Mrs. Millet to her wooden husband, as he sat leisurely sipping his last cup of tea and chewing the end of his reflections. "'I want to hear how he gets on, whether he is likely to get any practice, and if his office is located to suit him. I hope Hyacinth will speak a good word for him. It is very hard for a young man in a strange place to get employment.' i really pity john it must be so disagreeable to put up with the initiatory humiliations of a young physician without fortune in a great city can't he go round and ask people to give him work just like cousin ruth asked a sharp little millet who was playing marbles in the corner it is time you were in bed willie said his disconcerted mother as she pointed to the door go tell nancy to put you to bed as i was saying mr millet it is very hard for poor john he is so sensitive i hope he has a nice boarding-house among refined people and a pleasant room with everything comfortable and convenient about it he is so fastidious so easily disgusted with disagreeable surroundings i hope he will not get low-spirited if he gets practice i hope he will not have to walk to see his patients he ought to have a nice chase and a fine horse and some trusty little boy to sit in the chase and hold the reins while he makes his calls i hope he has curtains to his sleeping-room windows and a nice carpet on the floor and plenty of bedclothes and gaslight to read by and a soft lounge to throw himself on when he is weary poor john i wonder why we do not hear from him suppose you write to-day mr millet mr millet wiped his mouth on his napkin stroked his chin pushed back his cup two degrees, crossed his knife and fork traversely over his plate, moved back his chair two feet and a half, hemmed six consecutive times, and was then safely delivered of the following remark. My overcoat. The overcoat was brought in from its peg in the entry. The left pocket was disemboweled, and from it was ferreted out a letter from John, warranted to keep which had lain there unopened three days. Mrs. Millet made no remark. That day had gone by. She had ate, drank, and slept, with that petrifaction too long to be guilty of any such nonsense. She sat down with a resignation worthy of Socrates, and perused the following epistle. Dear Mother, Well, my sign hangs out my office door, Dr. John Millet, and here I sit day after day waiting for patience. I should spell it patience. This is a great city, and there are plenty of accidents happening every hour in the twenty-four. But unluckily for me, there are more than plenty of doctors to attend to them, as every other door has one of their signs swinging out. Hyacinth has been sick, and I ran up there the other day, thinking, as he is a public man, it might be some professional advantage to me to have my name mentioned in connection with his sickness he has a splendid place six or eight servants and everything on a corresponding scale to think of ruth's astonishing success i was in hopes it might help me a little in the way of business to say that she was my cousin but she has cut me dead how could i tell she was going to be so famous when i requested her not to allow her children to call me cousin john in the street i tell you mother we all missed a figure in turning the cold shoulder to her and how much money she has made i might sit in my office for a month and not earn so much as she can by her pen in one forenoon yes there's no denying it we've all made a great mistake 
Brother Tom writes me from college that at a party the other night he happened to mention, incidentally, of course, that Floy was his cousin, when someone near him remarked, I should think the less said about that by Floy's relatives the better. It frets Hyacinth to a frenzy to have her poverty alluded to. He told me that he had taken the most incredible pains to conciliate editors whom he despised, merely to prevent any allusion to it in their columns. I myself have sent several anonymous paragraphs to the papers for insertion, contradicting the current reports, and saying that Floy lost her self-respect before she lost her friends. I don't suppose that was quite right, but I must have an eye to my practice, you know, and it might injure me if the truth were known. I find it very difficult, too, to get any adverse paragraph in. She is getting to be such a favorite. Anywhere it will tell. The little scurrilous papers, you know, have no influence. It is very expensive living here. I am quite out of pocket. If you can get anything from father, I wish you would. Hyacinth says I must marry a rich wife, as he did, when I get cornered by Dunn's. Perhaps I may, but your rich girls are invariably homely, and I have an eye for beauty. Still, there's no knowing what gilded pill I may be tempted to swallow if I don't get into practice pretty soon. Hyacinth's wife makes too many allusions to her family to suit me, or Hyacinth either, if the truth must be told, but he hates a dun worse, so that squares it, I suppose. Love to Leela, your affectionate son, John Millet. End of chapter 85